Good morning, church family. Today's call to worship will be read from Revelations chapter 2, verse 8 through 11, which is found on the Pew Bible page 1132. To the angel of the church of Simra, write, These are the words of him who is the first and last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I will tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit will say to the churches. Those who are victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Today I will be reading Acts chapter 7, verses 54 through chapter 8, verses 3 in the Pew Bible, page 1011. When the members of Sahedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But seven full of Holy Spirit looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right of hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open up this, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep, and Saul approved of their killing him. On, the, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned between, for, deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Amen. Good morning. I'm really glad to be back with you again. But I would not be at all surprised but that you're in the big countdown. Um, two more weeks. And the one standing in the pulpit will be your own dear pastor. But I'm glad to have the opportunity to be a stand-in for him uh, this morning. It's my custom to always seek God in prayer before opening my mouth to try to preach. So if you'll just join me for a moment. Heavenly Father... These people are not assembled here today to hear my words. They are here to worship you. They are here to seek what the word of God has to say. May I not be a disappointment to them. May I open to their minds and to their understanding your word and the insights that you have placed in that word for us this morning. Cleanse our hearts, Lord, and our minds, 
and may your spirit speak to us. In the name of Jesus the Christ, we give you thanks and praise. Amen. Why were the Judeans taken into captivity by the Babylonians? Do you recall? Can you give me maybe a very, very brief, possibly a one or two word response as to why they were taken into captivity? Just Shout it out. Pretend you're not in church, that this is a Bible game show, the American Bible Challenge, and you're going to prove you know the Bible by shouting out the answer. Someone give me the answer. I heard disobedience, and I heard just the last of something from God. Rejecting God. You're both right. It is because they had neglected God and... The scripture says, failed to keep his Sabbaths, that they were allowed to learn a lesson, a very painful lesson. Going into captivity is not fun. And as they were again somewhat in captivity, this time not to the Babylonians, this time to another empire. Rome, they were not in captivity in the same way that their ancestors had been in the land of Babylon, but they were once again subject to a world-dominating power. And the reason for this subjection was the same as the reason that their ancestors had gone into Babylon. They had not paid attention to God. And there rose up a group of people. They were called the Hesadim, the pious ones. You've heard perhaps of Hasidic Jews even today. They are very orthodox. They are very strict. Now, out of this group of Hesadim came another group. They began to emerge in the middle of the second century B.C. Now, you know that in B.C., the numbers are counting down toward the coming of the Messiah, the Christ so when we say the middle of the second century, the first century B.C. would be up to, from 1 B.C., there was no year zero, from 1 B.C. to 100 B.C., and then the second century would be from 101 on to 200 B.C. So somewhere in the middle hundreds B.C., which is the second century before Christ, another group began to emerge. They were the separate ones. They were really somewhat from the Hesadim. They were from this pious group, but they were 
separate. They had heard of the the word of the Lord. Come out from among them and be ye separate, says the Lord. And they took that very literally. They were not going to be influenced by the worldly attitude of much of the people of their generation. They were strictly orthodox. Orthodox means straight. So if ever there were a straight-laced group, this is that group. They were very conservative. They took the word of God to be totally and completely literal. Now, there are some groups of people who say that the word of God, our scriptures, are the words of God through human voices or human pens. And we know that some parts of scripture are intended to be seen as scriptural allegories or prophetic when the word of God says that we should circumcise our hearts we're not supposed to have oral or excuse me uh, cardiac surgery and have a portion of our hearts removed Uh, I have found that my heart being intact is a benefit you probably have too So there are some things that God says that are meant to be an illustration of a divine truth. But they were as literal as possible. And when it came to what the word of God said, they wanted to be very certain that they did not play fast and loose with the word of God. They thought that their obedience to God was not only necessary for themselves, but necessary for the nation of the Jews as a whole. By now you have probably guessed that these separate ones are the Pharisees. They started off with a very good purpose and a very lofty goal for their lives. Now, we sometimes think of these as political parties within Judaism. It's not necessarily true. Although there was a political sort of branch. That were the, they were the Sadducees. Now, the Pharisees believed that they were in the world but not of the world. There was another group that took it even a little step farther. Those were the Essenes who believed that they may be in the world, but it was their goal and aim to live apart from the world. And they became somewhat monastic and thought that the life of reclusion was best. There is no tell it to the world for the Essenes. It's take what you've got and bury it in your heart and not let anyone turn you around. 
So the Essenes took what they had and like the story of the uh, talents, buried it in the ground. The Pharisees took what they had and decided that they would try to change the nation around them. And the Sadducees said, look what I've got. Let's see how we can use this to advance our lives. And the Sadducees became very um, politically involved. They thought that we live in the here and the now. They did not believe in an afterlife, so it's no going to heaven for them. It's how do we make now, here and now, the best that it can be. They did not accept any writings beyond Moses, and so therefore they did not believe in the afterlife. They did not believe in angels or spirits, and certainly there was no resurrection from the dead. When you're dead, you're dead. Now we, because we take our instruction from the word of God, we know that the living know that they shall die, but what do the dead know? They know exactly. We know that, and we assume that the Jews of Jesus' time, specifically the Pharisees, who were the ones who were the keepers of the law, we assume that they believed the same thing, but that's not true. They believed that when you die, you went to Hades. Now, Hades literally means the grave. But their view of Hades was different. You may have heard of a fellow named Orpheus who went to Hades. Only Hades for him was more like hell. The Hades that the that the Pharisees believed was more like what some Christians today refer to as purgatory. It was a place of great discomfort, but you were there because you had not lived a perfect life. Now, for the Pharisees, they strived to live as perfect a life as it was possible for them to do because they did not want to stay in Hades very long. But they did believe that one could eventually escape from Hades and have everlasting life. So this is what the belief structure was like for the Pharisees. Strict observance of the Torah and that their obedience was necessary, vital, in fact, to the existence of the nation. Now, it had started off as a good thing. They wanted to obey God so that they did not end up back in captivity. But their view of God was that God was the master accountant, the master keeper of records, that God watched everything you do, that God watched every word you said, he knew every thought you would think, 
And that God, in his watchful eyes, was paying such attention to your behavior that the Pharisees feared God. You may, at this point, be thinking to yourself, it's not just Pharisees who think of God in that way. I have been a Seventh-day Adventist all of my life. I was baptized in the St. Joseph River in 1963. But I have been taught similar things by people who thought they were teaching me the Word of God. Is it true that God knows everything we think or say or do? Absolutely. But, Is it true that God is looking at all of these things and trying to see whether he's going to save us or not? No. Because you see, God knows that we are sinners. Not just some of us. Not just the people who live out in the wicked world. Those of us who come to church every Sabbath, we are sinners. We plead with the Lord to take away our sinful nature, don't we? We plead with the Lord to do that, and yet we still have it. And there are voices among us, voices from the outside preaching to us and such, that would have us believe that we must achieve perfection to be saved. It's exactly, exactly what the Pharisees taught. Is perfection important for us? Absolutely. Can we be saved without it? Absolutely not. Can we, in and of ourselves, achieve it? Certainly not. Absolutely not. Perfection is now and ever shall be a gift from God through Jesus for us. We can never be perfect. And and if you take your life as a whole, and let's say from this moment on, you never, ever sinned in any way, shape, or form, would that take away the beginning of your life where you sinned? No. It is always through grace that we are saved. The Apostle Paul said, for it is by grace That you are saved through faith. And even the faith is not yours. It's the gift of God. So, when we look at the Pharisees, we need to understand them. The Pharisees are like Seventh-day Adventists. We don't like that. Because we like to look down our noses at the Pharisees. And how can we look down our noses at them if I'm like them? 
Pharisees aren't all bad. They had misinformation. Have you ever been taught something you found out later wasn't true? <laughs> yeah. I was taught as a child that there were certain places that if I went, you'll recognize this even though we weren't raised in the same place. There were certain places that if I went, my angel would stand outside crying. Right? Anybody heard that? Oh, yeah, I see some hands here. You know what God said? I will never leave you or forsake you. God doesn't approve of some of the things that we do, but God doesn't leave. If God leaves, we're lost. We have no hope apart from God, none at all. We cannot be saved if our God rejects us when we sin. But I want you to understand the mindset of the Pharisees. Now, into that setting is born Saul of Tarsus. We're not told a whole lot about Saul in his early days, but we do know that his father became a Roman citizen. Maybe he paid for it. Maybe there was some heroic act or something that gave him that right. But he became a Roman citizen. We also assume that Saul's father either was a Pharisee or was complicit with the teaching and the lifestyle of the Pharisees because Saul was taught by Gamaliel. You may say, where in the world are you getting all of this stuff? Well, slip over to uh, the book of Acts, chapter 22. Acts, chapter 22, verse 3. Then Paul said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia. But brought, up, but brought up in this city, Jerusalem, that is, under Gamaliel, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. Gamaliel was the most respected Pharisee of all Pharisees at the time of Paul. He was the Albert Einstein, Albert Schweitzer, um, all of the great teachers put together. He was the one. If you were taught by Gamaliel, you were on a fast track for a high position in Judaism. And Paul was taught by him. And as he was growing up, he had a distaste that bordered on hatred for anyone who would dare to refute any of the teachings 
of the Pharisees. Now, there was at that time a very elite group called the Sanhedrin, or in some Bibles, like the King James Version, it's the Council. Uh, Sanhedrin is a transliteration of the Greek word for council, very nearly Sanhedrin. It was a concept or a term that went way back in Jewish thinking and Jewish understanding, even to the time of the Persians. Um, but at that time, the, the Jews had much greater autonomy, self-determination and such. But during the middle second century BC, about the same time that the Pharisees were coming into existence, uh, this body was organized to be the ruling force of Judaism. It had three groups that were part of it. There were the elders, uh, presbyterios, or presbyteros, however you accent it, um, the old ones, the teachers. Um, I have presbyopia, which means I have old eyes, and it's because the eyes are in an old body. That's why I have them. It just means old ones, elders. When we hear elders today, we think of a religious connotation. To them, these were the wise ones. They had lived long enough to know what was going on. They knew what was happening. The second group were referred to as the chief priests. Now, these would be high priests who had retired. You could only hold the office for a certain period of time, but also for the four families, and I know that sounds like the mafia, but it, from the four families that tended to contribute most of the high priests. Yes, it was very political. And then the third group were the scribes. The scribes were the teachers of the law. They were the PhDs. They were the university professors, the seminary teachers, whatever you want. So this group, the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes made up the Sanhedrin, but here's the hard part. They were limited to 71 members. And one of the 71 was the chairman or the current high priest. So it's a very exclusive group. And here's something else that makes it difficult. It was a lifetime appointment. So once you got in, you served until you died. I guess unless you resigned. Uh, popes can resign. I suppose Sanhedrin members can. And becoming one of the 71 was an amazing perk, blessing. You weren't elected. You couldn't say, oh, when the next opening comes up, I want to be on the list. You didn't send your little flyers in the mail. You didn't um, put posters up all over town. You were invited. 
someone in the group would nominate you and the group would either accept or reject. Does it sound like a very closed group? You betcha. This group of 70 had amazing power and was it an insider's club? Yeah, it had to be. So it was an amazing thing for Saul of Tarsus to become a member of the Sanhedrin. Probably he was appointed by his teacher, Gamaliel. He was, when I say appointed, nominated is a better word. You say, well, how do you know that he was in the council? Because when we find the story of Stephen in the book of Acts, we find that there was a meeting of the Sanhedrin, and they were listening to the words of defense given by Stephen. Now, if you were to read that, you would say, it doesn't sound much like a defense. Well, it was really a testimony that was appealing to their hearts that they needed to abandon their rejection of Jesus the Christ and accept him as the Messiah, the one that God had sent to the world to save mankind from sin. It was a plea to them because you may not fully recognize it, but the year Stephen gave this speech happened to be the last year of a prophecy Daniel had given of 490 years. It was the end of the last seven weeks. It was God saying to the Jewish nation, will you accept my son as the savior of the world? Will you accept his sacrifice as what delivers you from sin? Will you reject your selfishness and will you reject your hard-heartedness or will I have to take my blessing from you? By the way, God did not reject the Jews in 34 A.D., God did not reject the Jews. The Jews rejected officially as a nation. They rejected Jesus as the Messiah. A session of the Sanhedrin was taking place. They were in legal session hearing testimony from a witness. When the witness began to talk about Jesus of Nazareth having been raised from the dead and was now seated at the position of power and authority, the right hand of the Almighty. And they rose up while they were in session and closed their ears so that they couldn't hear Stephen's witness anymore. And worse than that, 
They could still hear him with their hands over their ears. So what does scripture say they began to do? They began to shout, I'm not going to listen to you anymore. Does that sound like a three-year-old having a tantrum? Yes. And what did they do while they were in session? They refused to hear any more testimony from the witness because they didn't like the message he was delivering. They covered their ears. They shouted at the top of their voice. They grabbed him, dragged him out of the council chamber, out of the gates of the city, and proceeded to stone him. And as they are doing so, they put their outer garments, suit jackets, if you will, whatever, at the feet of the youngest member of the council, Saul of Tarsus. It's what Desiree read to us this morning. Verse 58 of chapter 7, dragging him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now, Stephen is maintaining his witness in all of this while they were stoning him. Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fall, fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He's praying for his stoners. I used to have the idea that stoning, you'd get the biggest rock you could lift and you would throw it and hurl it at the person. That's not true. They pebbled the person to death. Each pebble was like a vote against their sin. It was the way the Jews were to say, we will not tolerate this sinful presence in our midst. So think of those rocks you find beside the railroad tracks or the big old rocks that you find maybe in a driveway or a gravel pit and you think about getting hit by those by 71 righteous folks from the council and ask yourself how much praying for them you would be doing. I would hope as much as Stephen. But Saul was there. And it says in, it says in chapter 8 verse 1. And Saul was there giving approval to his death. Now, what did Saul do next? It says that on that day great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem and all, except the apostles, were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Slip over to chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And he went to the high priest and asked him for letters 
to the synagogues in Damascus, synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. He didn't stop in Jerusalem and Judea. This young, ambitious, highly promising Pharisee decided that he was going to make a name for himself. These followers of Yeshua, these followers of the way, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When it talks about the followers of the way, that's what they're referring to. They weren't called Christians until much later. He decided he was going to make a name for himself. He had been invited to join the Sanhedrin because of Gamaliel. And he was not going to slow down. He was going to take the fast track. If persecuting followers of the way was the way to get attention, he was going to get attention. And he went house to house. We didn't want to go house to house to do in-gathering or any other kind of missionary work, right? That's why we don't have it anymore. We don't want to go house to house. But Saul went house to house to house looking for followers of the way. It says he put them in prison here. But you know he didn't stop at prison? Go to chapter 22. We read verse 3, where he talks about his earlier life. Start in verse 4 now. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them in prison. He didn't just have them put in prison. Prison was a holding cell leading to their execution. It was not just Stephen who was stoned. It was not just the apostles who may have been crucified. This was something that was done to many Christians by Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus was making a name for himself that is beyond whatever you could imagine. He was a rock star. And I know there's double entendre there because of the stoning, yes. He was a rock star. He was famous among the Jews everywhere. And yet, and yet, when he got permission from the high priest to go to the next province, to Damascus in Syria, he encountered Jesus of Nazareth. And we know that Saul of Tarsus went from this follower of the way hater, this persecutor of the church, this one responsible for death and imprisonment to many, many Believers in Jesus, <coughs> the Lord called him to be the apostle, not to the Jews. No, no. 
We're going to show you something, Saul. You are going to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Those people you hate so much you can hardly spit out the word. You talk about saving grace. You talk about a brand plucked from the burning. You talk about an amazing transformation. That's it. Now I'm going to be something that's going to aggravate you a whole lot. I'm going to tell you that next week we're going to talk about how Saul went from the persecutor of the church to the apostle to the Gentiles to the author of approximately half of the New Testament. It's too late today. I'm going to be here again next week. We're going to finish the story. I know you hate continued stories. When you were a kid, you hated continued stories. But it's part of life. Part of faith. It's part of waiting. Part of keeping the anticipation. But today, I want you to understand that you could not get more dyed-in-the-wool anti-Christian than Saul of Tarsus. And I want you to ask yourself, I want you to look for answers during the week. Find out whether I give you good answers next week. How did God take Saul of Tarsus and turn him into the Apostle Paul? The difference in the name is not important. Saul is Hebrew, Paul is Roman, Latin. Doesn't matter. That's not the, that's not the point. How? Did God transform him? What was there that went from this breathing murderous thoughts to his confession that Christ came to save sinners of whom I am chief? Is it grace? You bet. Is it amazing grace? Absolutely. Is it unique to Paul? No. I want you to know that wherever you are in your life today, however steeped in sin you may think you are, Jesus the Christ has a way to take you from that, turn you so far around you don't even know which way you're headed until you see that you're looking at Jesus and you know his face and you know the sound of his voice. And you know that you would die for him, if need be. What makes the difference? There's good news in it. But the good news for us today is this. Wherever you are, you are not too far to be saved by the Christ. Wherever you are, whatever your life is like, Jesus is calling you. For if when we were God's enemies, Christ saved us, how much more will he do for us now that we are the children of God? Let's take the clue from the piano and we will turn to number 295. 
as we examine our lives and find that we are but chief of sinners, but that there is hope for us, and that hope is in Jesus Christ, and that there is something that each of us can do to help others to be saved. Lord, today we are reminded that Christ came to this world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. But it's not about me, the sinner, it's about Christ, the Savior. And that his ability to save is not limited at all by what our behavior may have been. He is the life-giving God. He is the saving God. He is the holy Christ. He is the lamb for sinners slain. Lord, may your spirit speak to us today and tell us that however far we are away from you, Jesus' arms of love are reached out to us, inviting us to be enfolded in his embrace. So, Lord, let us rejoice in that embrace today. Let us listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Let us say to Jesus, yes, Lord, I come. Make me your child. Save me by your love and grace. May each one hearing these words today respond by saying, Here I am, Lord, save me, and I will give you praise for eternity. Through the Holy Christ we pray. Amen.